Welcome to the Alienist Angel of Darkness recap podcast. My name is Alex, and I have not read Caleb Carr's The Angel of Darkness. And my name is Nick, and I have read The Angel of Darkness. Today we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 5 of the TNT series titled Belly of the Beast. While we will not be spoiling any of the book and by extension any future plotlines of the show, we will be discussing the details through Season 2, Episode 5, so pause this and go catch up before you listen to the rest of the episode. You can find more episodes of our podcast at TheAlienist.tv, and you can send feedback to feedback at Alienist.tv to tell us what you think of our podcast. If you enjoy this show or any other show on the Midwest Podcast Network, please consider heading over to mpn.bz slash Patreon or patreon.com slash MidwestPodNet and pledge as little as a dollar a month to make our network even better. Special thanks to Jason K. and Tom Z. who have pledged at the level of $10 per month. Speaking of other shows on the Midwest Podcast Network, check out Horror Movie Yearbook this Friday with their Vampire Movie Bracket, as well as the Midwest Game Nerds on Monday when we will talk about Carrion and Grounded. <sighs> nice. Well done. Thank you. How you doing? Doing really well. That's good. How about you? I'm great. Today was a beautiful, beautiful fall day <laughs> on August 4th, 2020. <laughs> it, was. it was gorgeous. The, today was exactly my favorite absolute favorite kind of weather it could have been a little bit sunnier but i so i guess it wasn't my absolute favorite but it was it was damn close for a month that i normally hate i'm not a hot weather person yeah it was nice to have the windows down and some fans in the windows and just the house is probably like colder now than it has been since like even before air conditioning was in and it was great yeah it was beautiful we had a nice cross breeze everywhere i drove today i had the windows down the sunroof open it was even raining at one point, and I still had my driver's window open because I was like, I don't even care. This is so nice <laughs> to just feel that cool breeze. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a wonderful day. Well, I'm sure it's going to be like 100 degrees in September, so it's not. Yeah, Enjoy probably. it now while it's here. It'll, yeah. be, it'll be high 80s and humid in no time again, yeah. which is probably So yeah, Friday. I definitely tried to, tried to enjoy it. Tonight would have been a primo night to have a little bonfire in my backyard, and I was like... <laughs> Share a couple my, egg creams around the fire. Uh, don't even tease me, man. <laughs> my wife was like, why don't you postpone the podcast tonight so you can s- sit by the fire and enjoy it? I was like, ah, it'll be there. It'll be there tomorrow. Tomorrow's supposed to be pretty good, too. Good, good. I do have my glass of rye, though. Tonight, I... I've realized I've been having a different drink every week we've recorded. Oh. And this week I have a glass of lovely, it's called Redemption Rye. And uh, it was the lower shelf uh, at the liquor store by me, or like, eh, like middle. I think it's like, it's like 30 bucks or something for the bottle, okay. which is not like crazy, but not super cheap either. But it came highly recommended and it is delicious. Nice. I'm still drinking carbonated tang. <laughs> <laughs> which those of you who listened to our Westworld podcast back in March know that I've been drinking that forever. Um, so yeah, the sweeteners haven't killed me yet. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's great. You know, I thought of you. Uh, uh, that could be the end of the sentence, really. Just I thought of you. <laughs> uh, a few weeks ago when I was traveling, I was at the airport and I bought, I was going to buy like a snack and a drink just to have on the plane because I didn't want to like touch anything else. And uh, I, <laughs> airport stores sell the strangest like selection of things. There's mm. some stuff that you can't find anywhere else. And then there's stuff that you just absolutely don't want. Uh, for example, 
there was one big cooler, one large cooler full of all sorts of different varieties of like smoothie and vitamin water, which is what I ended up getting, which is what reminded me of you. I got the triple X and I was okay. like that. I know that's Alex's, that's one of his jams. And that was always my favorite vitamin water. Yep. I, I haven't seen a vitamin water in a store and I can't even tell you how long, but they had it at the airport. So I was like, why not, man? When in Rome, yeah. baby. I uh, what happened with vitamin water, but it's, it's becoming harder to find. People realized yeah. it wasn't actually all that healthy. At all, yeah. But it does yeah. taste great. It, does. Uh, it is mostly water, I guess, so it's it's got that going for it. But anyway, right next to that was another giant case. I mean, excuse me, I'm going to say eight feet wide by probably four and a half, five feet tall, full of Dasani water that nobody wanted. It no. was absolutely packed. And I thought, why? Like, literally, that's it. It was a Dasani case. And I was like, dear Lord, man, what are we doing here? Dasani is the worst. It's so any, bad. It doesn't get any worse than Dasani bottled water. There's Aqua, no... For me, Aquafina is a close second. I think that's also really bad. But Dasani is so bad. It's funny. I prefer... Like, I... I would pick Aquafina over Dasani a thousand times. Absolutely. I would too. I'm okay. just saying it's right. like, it's right. number two for terrible bottled water. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. Dasani's, but Dasani's really terrible. bad. It's, and I don't know how you mess up water. Like it's literally just <laughs> rainwater from a roof. <laughs> that sounds better. I don't know. I don't know what they do to it. And so they're, that's owned by Coke, right? Like Coca-Cola Dasani's owns Dasani's pep. No, no, you're right. You're right. Dasani's Coke and Aquafina's Pepsi. I, I feel like Coke is the only brand that really does that where they're like, no, we're going to buy the whole case and it's going to be Dasani. <laughs> and you're going to, if you want water, you're going to pay for it. Fortunately at the airport, they also sell smart water. Yeah. So I've, I've purchased many a smart water at an airport, but never a Dasani. Well, if you want to write in with your bottled water preferences or tier lists, please do. Oh, yeah. No, number at, one for me is probably smart water. I think that's really yeah, good. I think so, too. I agree. I know Fiji water was big for a while. Oh, I, yeah. Not a big I Fiji mean, guy. listen, that's like saying that, like, my favorite food is probably, like, some tar- sort of chicken, but, like, obviously a filet I'm never going to say no to. That's Fiji. Fiji tastes <laughs> the best, but it's expensive, but it's so good. Yeah, it's that square bottle. I can't imagine that's easy some- Somehow it's a factor in the flavor. I think I don't know. I <laughs> see that. I feel that square bottle squares. in my hand, and I'm like, oh, "Yep, <laughs> this is going to be good." Well, we want to know what bottled water our listeners prefer, so please send that to feedback at thealienist.tv. Uh, much like these people did with which much more informative uh, opinions and things. So we got an email from Sue. She says, "Hi guys, so glad to have you back." Have to say, however, that as a mom, I love the Sarah and John thing, even though it wasn't in the books. I guess it's just because of Luke Evans with a crying emoji, uh, <laughs> laughing, crying emoji, not just a crying one. Uh, thanks for doing the podcast, Sue. Sue, thank you for writing in. Thanks, Sue. It's so good to hear from you again. Yes. We're so uh, glad you're back on board. Absolutely. Uh, you'll have to write in and remind me or remind us, have you read the books? Have you read both books? Because I know we have a lot of people that have read the first, but haven't read The Angel of Darkness. And I was just curious, not that it matters one way or the other necessarily. I was just curious when you said, even though it's not on the books, if you were basing that on what I was saying, or if if you've read it as well. 
Yeah, I I could probably dig back in some emails and try and find out, but I unfortunately did not do that homework to see if she is a book reader or not. But I would expect she's probably not. But who knows? We'll see. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe she came to the books after the show because of our podcast. I'll have to circle back around to this. I've I've abandoned trying to keep up with the show and reading the book at the same time. But I I did. I did do a little bit of investigation and some skimming, so I'll I'll circle back to that after the feedback. Okay, good. All right. Uh, we got another email. Uh, subject line: The Alienist Episode Three: Colon Milk. <laughs> <laughs> this did you get from... that tattooed on your forearm yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, this one's from Sarah P. She says, "Hey guys, I've been really uh, I've really been enjoying your coverage of the Alienist this season. Forgive me if you've gotten a million answers to your question about breast milk already." No. Side note, Sarah, I'm flattered you think a million people would listen to this podcast. I'm even more flattered that you would think a million people would write into this podcast. It was only 500,000, so your vote is counted. <laughs> yeah, there were there were 500,000 other people before you, but no. Anyway, uh, you were the first person to email us about it. Not the only one. We got another one after you, but you were the first person. Uh, back to that. She said, just in case you haven't, here's the explanation. You would easily be able to tell the difference between breast milk and formula under a microscope. Powdered infant formula was expensive but relatively available in the 1890s with 27 patented brands available under such delicious names as Horlick's Malted Milk, Hill's Malted <laughs> Biscuit Powder, and Robinson's Patented Patent Barley. Robert Pattinson Barley? <laughs> no. no, that's just my stuttering. Robinson's Patent Barley, yeah. Obvious sarcasm there. As you might guess from the names, the emphasis was on starch to fatten up the baby and sugar because breast milk is lightly sweet. While some people mixed various ingredients with cow's milk for formula, the unreliability of ice boxes made it difficult to store. Either way, powdered milk or cow's milk was boiled with starches. Uh, either way, powdered milk or cow's milk boiled with starches would look rather flat under a microscope. Breast milk, on the other hand, contains large microscopic globules of fat, and white blood cells in the form of neutrophils and macrophages. There are other chemicals present which that occur only in human breast milk, but those first three would be the most obvious for someone using a basic microscope, especially the white blood cells which make it, as they say in nursing circles, a, quote, living liquid. Hope that helps explain the realism in this particular clue. Thanks for the great podcast, Sarah P. Sarah, thank you so much. Um, fantastic answer. Exactly what I was looking for. So good. Um, better than better than I had ever expected. Well, and, and and I like I it it brought something to light for me because I didn't really um I glossed over the fact that the clue was that it was breast milk and not um not formula, you know, or or even like I guess I still arrived at the same conclusion, but that distinction is important. It kind of tells you that it's that she she was being fed by somebody who had maybe had a child at some point right someone is yeah capable of producing that yes. yeah the way the way the show presents it is almost as though they slid like some unknown substance and then immediately identified it as breast milk that's kind of how it felt to me rather than distinguishing between the two yeah and and it, i guess the thing is is that it kind of makes sense to be like well what's going to be in a baby stomach exactly something yeah. to so, feed it, so right? stupid on me for not Thinking that the, the this is why I'm not a forensic detective because they're they're like well it's going to be one of a handful of things and it's 
that you know they came to that conclusion yeah i like the uh the idea that consumers back then would simply be the name would point them in the direction of whatever supplement is in there to fatten babies up rather than be some like catchy or cutesy name it's like strictly utilitarian and like that's what consumers back then would respond to yeah they'd be much more informed and be like well what's in this oh that makes sense like that's in the name now it would have some stupid name and and it wouldn't pediasure right exactly yeah (laughs) baby smile (laughs) yeah yeah no it's like that's all you had to go off of was the it kind of reminds me of like when the phone book was invented and people started putting a at the front of their yes their business, business name, name to get yep. further up in the sooner mm-hmm. in the phone book yeah sure. yeah branding yeah, that in the was 1890s a, that was a great answer and yeah. i i think the other factor for me and like immediately kind of turning up my nose at the scene was underestimating the sophistication of microscopes and those tools back then even the centrifuge yeah. like we were so we were so wowed by it and somebody wrote in and was like, yeah, that's not that cool. Dum dum. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of just thought like, oh, how, how sophisticated can these instruments be when you mm-hmm. know they, they must have been plenty fine, especially with the trained eye to be able to look at the, the, the structure of this substance and, and be able to identify it. So it was just, you know. Yeah, like, I I should have thought about, like, all those kids' science kits that you see that come with, like, slides, and they're like, you should put some water under this and see what uh, organisms are in it and things like that. So it's not like you couldn't distinguish things under a microscope, but especially these two presumably college-educated people that are... (laughs) One who's actually a scientist. Yeah. Well, no, I'm saying saying the Isaacsons, not you and I. Oh, not you and I, yeah. Yeah. That's true, also. (laughs) Uh... Yeah, I had a sweet microscope when I was a kid. Yeah, that's why I'm so stupid. I didn't think twice about it. And it was it came with uh, like some slides, like you said, but it also came with like little vials that had like a de- one had a dead bee, one had a dead mm. spider, and they had like other substances in there. Like there was like a rock and like some leaves or something. And these things you could look at in a microscope, and you can get it was nuts, like how good it was. And I was yeah. like seven and had this thing, so. If a seven-year-old kid in like 1991 or 92 can have this, then I'm sure they would have a really top-of-the-line one in you know, 1898. Is that where yeah, we are? I think so. Yeah. Anyway, like that. awesome email. Awesome feedback. Yes. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, one more from Mark. I, ha- I, ha- I have to know, Sarah, if you're willing to write in again. Did you research all those different formulas and all those different names, or was that knowledge that you already had yeah are you are you some type of uh formula expert from a historical formula expert (laughs) i'm assuming that some research was involved but that was just so so well done i feel like it feels like more than two minutes of googling but maybe that's what it was i don't know i'd like to hear more about the investigative process behind this yes please write in let us know um also your favorite bottled water and least favorite yes that too Whoa, I wonder if Dasani looks different under a microscope than Fiji. (laughs) Yeah, there's just a bunch of fat globules. We have have to do this. Do you have a microscope? (laughs) I don't. I don't. Well, I mean, I have them at work. I could probably, well, I don't know if I need, well, maybe. You have to bring me to work. We have to do this together. Take a video of it. All right. Sounds good. We'll do that. 
Uh, all right, Mark wrote in thoughts on episode three. Hi, Alex and Nick. We're midway through the current season of The Alienist, and I thought I'd write in with some comments or thoughts after listening to your recaps for episodes three and four. I'm liking season two so far. It seems to me that the actors, writers, and showrunners have settled in nicely to to the show as a whole after getting through season one. In contrast to season one, I have intentionally not read the book that season two is based on. Last time around, I found myself constantly comparing the season one episodes to the book, and it was a major distraction for me. I fully intend to read The Angel of Darkness after season two is finished, though, given the major changes they made to the TV adaptation based on Nick's comments. That said, I'm finding viewing season two of the show more enjoyable than season one because I, simply because I have no idea what's going to happen next. A couple of points you brought up in the episode three recap prompted me to write in. <clears throat> like both of you, I raised an eyebrow when Marcus proclaimed that he could tell that the substance was breast milk under the microscope. As a scientist myself, I was skeptical that it would be that easy to ID breast milk that way. I had to Google that, and it turns out that there may be some truth to that claim. Google. Uh, yes. Um, Google. Thank you, Mr. Evans. Um, there are pictures uh, available of breast milk viewed under a microscope, and it does have some interesting characteristics, namely a large, prom- uh, namely large prominent fat globules and white blood cells are visible. In contrast, baby formula looks different from breast milk. No cells, obviously, and the prominent fat glob- globules woof, are largely absent. It begs the question, though, why would Marcus need to view breast milk under a microscope in the past that would allow him to ID the sample in a couple of seconds? I think that's pretty unlikely his character would have actually done that, but who knows. But there's a bigger problem with this whole thing. If the sample had been taken from the dead baby's stomach, the fat globules would have likely been partially digested and the white blood cells would certainly have been destroyed. So I think they were playing fast and loose with the facts to enable them to come up with this bit of the story. Also, as someone who does a lot of work with microscopes in my own research, I had to smirk a bit as well when he looked under his microscope. He didn't use any illumination to view the breast milk. A minor criticism, but it annoyed me nonetheless. Hmm. You were both amazed at the hand-craked centrifuge rig they used. That was certainly common back in the day, but they were still not in use not that long ago. They were still in use not that long ago. My senior year in high school, one of my science classes had us use the exact same type of rig. This was in 1980, so we're not talking ancient history. I distinctly remembered using the hand crank centrifuges because a near disaster that occurred in the class I was taking. While we were all dutifully spinning our tubes, one student's rig malfunctioned and it sent their glass tubes flying across the room. You can imagine how fast those tubes were traveling. It smashed into a wall and the glass went flying. (laughs) Luckily, neither the tubes nor the subsequent broken glass hit anyone. That's an awesome story. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Lastly, not so much a comment on the specific episode, but your comments about Thomas Burns and whether or not he was as corrupt as is depicted in the show made me think of a movie I had watched the Saturday prior to the airing of episodes three and four. That movie was Serpico, Mm -hmm. 1973, starring Al Pacino in the title role. If you're not familiar with it, the story based on real events of a new uh, New York cop, Pacino, who refuses to participate in the rampant corruption that was going on in the NYPD during his career throughout the the 60s the corruption seemingly went all the way up to the police commissioner this sounds remarkably well this sounds remarkably similar to what is depicted in the alienist i thought there was an interesting parallel between the movie and the show in terms of the culture of the nypd it was rampantly corrupt in the late 1800s and it was still rampantly corrupt in the 1960s it was until serpico and a few other clean cops brought all the corruption to light that major changes were enacted in the 1970s that's it for now Great to have you both recapping and discussing season two. Take care, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Mark, it's great to hear from you. Yes. We recap 
for you. Yes, we do. We recap for everybody listening, and especially those who write in as well. Um, Centrifuge story was great. That is Uh, awesome. I I assume uh, you have to balance a centrifuge when you use it. So if it was unbalanced, maybe maybe somebody forgot to balance the other side and you have to like load the tubes on opposite sides to keep it opposite sides and you have to make sure that what goes into the tubes are relatively the same weight as well yeah so that makes a lot of sense yeah so that's probably what happened there or it could have just been a broken one um and yeah i mean this the serpico thing just kind of makes me sad because mm. i feel like there's probably still a bunch yes. of corruption in the police, as we're hearing lately. <laughs> Every, everywhere, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, clearly, it's a problem that we're still fighting. Um, but... <laughs> you know, it's funny. I My wife loves Law & Order SVU. Uh, she used to watch tons of it in college with all of her roommates. It's like a continual running joke between them. One of them, in particular, has so much deep love for Christopher Maloney that mm. they buy her, like, Christopher Maloney slash Elliot Stabler themed gifts. Uh, she has a pillowcase with him on it. Uh, <laughs> it's it's amazing. I've seen the show. I'm certainly very familiar with it, but I've never watched it to the degree that they have. And now it's on. We have Hulu now, and it's all mm. on Hulu. All like 23 or 24 seasons, which is insane. So we started watching it. We started at like season four or five, and we're just kind of letting it run. We usually pass out on the couch from exhaustion from dealing with our nine month old baby to the tune of Law and Order. But when I am awake and actually watching it, I'm continually struck by how when this show was airing, and it even in recent, and uh, in, in years to follow, you would watch it and, and really be like, man, these guys are the heroes of the show. They're doing the right thing. They're saving people. But I watch it so much now, and they cut so many corners, and they fudge so much stuff, and they... Mm. they play the system to their advantage so often. Sometimes I watch it and I'm like, these guys are kind of the bad guys. Like <laughs> you, you do root for them because you know that they're like good people and they're, they're trying their best to like help victims. But a lot of the times the shit they do is like straight up illegal. And I've even the language and the dialogue, some of the words they use, I'm like, you can't, you can't say this on TV now. Yeah. And some of these seasons were airing like 2000, early, early to mid 2000s. And I just think, man, how much stuff has changed because even the way these cops behave, the stuff they say and the, the way they're like, well, I have a friend in the, in the file who's a file clerk who just misplaced the paperwork for a few days <laughs> to make this perp stay in jail for an extra five nights so we can try <laughs> to get more evidence. And I'm like, dang, you can't do that. Like, it's great. <laughs> but I get why you're doing it, but you can't do it. And it's just really funny that uh, even corruption used in the pursuit of, of a good is still corrupt. And it's just funny how you are you want to... Like I can watch like a Western, like a Clint Eastwood movie, where he just like shoots everybody. And you're like, yeah, he's the good guy. But like when you watch <laughs> police shows and they do stuff like this, I'm just like, you can't do that, man. Like... <laughs> This is what this is why we are where we are right now. <laughs> yeah, the the whole like means justifies the ends kind of attitude. Like I feel like that's a lot of um, what you would get out of watching like a twenty four Jack Bauer never playing by the rules, doing what he needs to do to save the day. Like it's certainly like it's always kind of been compelling fiction wise, but yeah, uh, I feel like that there's sort of almost a responsibility now to to not 
write it that way. Like, Absolutely. I don't really see shows like that anymore. They're still on. It's just I don't watch them, I guess. But Oh, anyway. I think the one that kind of is the most uh, interesting right now is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I think they've kind of... I, I, I'm not an avid watcher of the show. Um, I've seen a few episodes, but it's, it's you know, uh, uh, Andy Samberg mm-hmm. comedy cop show. But it sounded like after everything that's happened with George Floyd that they are taking a serious look about how they want to proceed with the show. Sure. And, and so, um, and, you know, I think cops got finally canceled or something around the same time. And Live did. PD did as well. Yeah. And so it's certainly changing the way things are but um but yeah like it, it there there was i i also heard somebody like theorizing like or you know just kind of off the cuff saying like it feels like a lot of these cops that you see nowadays are the ones that grew up watching the movies about the cops that mm. were like doing the wrong thing for the right reason you know and so it's it's could be a weird feedback luke i don't know how yeah. true that or is e- but even more black and white of just like not having to be answerable yeah and in the show in law and order there's so many times where a character like one of the cops or one of the like the ada somebody will do something and the rest like cover for them and they're Mm -hmm. like which is also the even more alarming thing that there's not that character being like whoa guys like can't do that sometimes characters get close to it but then inevitably someone's like but but an innocent victim and then they go all right he got 24 hours. And it, <laughs> It'd be interesting to see if there's any episodes of that show that deal with, like, whistleblowers or bad police. I'm sure there are. They have to have covered everything. Like, yeah. we're only on season six, I think, and I'm like, how? How does this show go on for so long? It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I think it's on season 24 right now, 24 or 25. Like, it's nuts. That's insanity. Anyway. All right. We're... 25 minutes into our episode, we should probably get to the, the recap, huh? Yeah. All right, let's do that. Uh, teaser in episode five here. As Libby sits down to tea with the matron, she is interrupted by a neighbor at the door who hears baby Anna. Libby quickly dismisses the woman and heads to breastfeed baby Anna. Anna bites, angering Libby, causing her to say, my baby doesn't bite and freak out on Anna. She then talks to the matron as if she's still alive. Um... Once again, in this entire episode, interesting to spend more time with Libby and uh, really disturbing. Like in these two episodes that aired this week, um, Libby's Libby's played by actress Rosie McEwen, who's like pretty relatively unknown, mm-hmm. at least in uh, Western TV. But I mean, she I think she's pretty young and, and, and uh, maybe more known in like theater in in the uk i'm not necessarily sure but i think she's been turning in a great performance as as this villain yes yes she's doing it justice yeah um but yeah even just like the moment with the matron like she's like seeing the matron talking to the matron as if she's still alive and all that stuff just very very disturbing disturbing is a great way to put it yeah any other thoughts on the teaser no, I agree. I think uh, her performance has been very interesting to watch and, and kind of compare and contrast to the book. You know, I I see, I agree what what Mark was saying in his feedback about having intentionally not read this book. I think that was a good call. Uh, mm. But at the same time, as much stuff as I'm comparing 
and contrasting. I'm also, I'm kind of along for the ride with, with everybody who hasn't read it. Cause I'm kind of, it's, it's deviated so heavily from the book that I'm kind of along for the ride too. And just kind of seeing what details they are scooping up and throwing into the show and what they're just completely throwing away. So yeah, the performance of Libby is definitely a little different from the book, but definitely i think maybe she dis- demonstrates a lot of the same characteristics like it's a very true performance but the motivation behind it is a little different so the mm. the the character and her background are definitely different okay interesting uh all right act 1 sarah's at bitsy's bedside apologizing for putting her in harm's way bitsy still wants to help take libby down and informs sarah that libby had charcoal on her mouth when she was attacked Sarah will have John put Libby's sketch in the paper, and Bitsy informs Sarah that there's a good picture of Libby at the hospital. Lucius steals the picture and overhears conversations from Burns, Doyle, and Marco. Burns threatens Marco that he better not be killing babies. Burns and Doyle want to speak with the matron, but she hasn't made it in yet, so they go talk to Colleen. Lucius and Sarah head to the matron's apartment after she didn't make it into work, and they find her corpse there. As the Isaacsons and Laszlo inspect the scene, Sarah is haunted by Libby's presence and notices that she's painted the matron's eyes just like the nap baby. Marcus finds acetanilide at the scene, and no, but no charcoal to neutralize it, so he's, uh, she's slowly poisoning the baby as she breastfeeds. Libby ingests more acetanilide and leaves a light on for the baby as she heads out, causing the baby to cry loudly. Um, I like that Bitsy's not just out for the count. She's still there and wants to continue helping. Yep. Um, good good character there um burns and marco the burns scene here was interesting to me the idea that like burns has this great speech about how like i'm here to help you because i believe you do good work and i want to believe that you do good work and if i find out that you're not doing good work you're gonna have to answer to me and so like i'm just kind of left wondering how genuine he's being about that you know but it just seems like an interesting kind of dichotomy. We, we as the outside viewer assume that Burns is not doing good work, but is Burns being malicious in what he does, or is he just trying to help people he thinks he can help, I guess. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting too. I, I kind of wrote like, does Burns actually have like a soul? Does he care about something Mm. or somebody, this particular cause? Uh, it would, I, I still don't know what to make of it though. Cause by the end of the, yeah. epi- or by the end of, uh, yeah, the episode and, and the following, he's just kind of like back to the same old. So it's interesting. I thought, could there is, could there be a face turn here, but mm. not quite. Mm. I'm ready for it though. Oh, it be- <laughs> sounds good to me. Yeah. The, I don't know if the show could handle it. <laughs> burns burns and more just doing the the predator handshake oh man beautiful no burns and sarah it's not more <laughs> i don't know i don't know if we'll get that burns burns seems to have established how he feels about sarah yeah um, he, he's almost kind of he's kinda, he's kind of like uh was a politically correct redneck was that the meme where or almost politically Politically incorrect redneck. You know what I'm talking about? Almost politically correct redneck. That's it. Yeah, look them up because they're really funny. And uh, that's the and way they, Burns th- is. Like he Burns. starts off and like, oh, all right, he cares about women, women and babies. He's like, no, I just care about babies. I hate women. It's kind of <laughs> kind of the way Burns comes across. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I have to issue a correction, a self okay. uh, a self imposed correction. 
I think in episode, I don't know what episode it was because they blur together, but the <laughs> one that Cecilia Bow is in, the painter. Yeah. You had asked me if she was in the book, and I said I didn't think so, or I hmm. said not in that capacity. Well, I'll talk about this in the next episode, talking about my book reread uh, endeavors. So I'll okay. save that for episode six. But uh, I had to do some skimming. She is in the book. She serves a similar function, but what she does, because she is the actual person, the actual painter, she's not Senora Linares' teacher. She is an artist that they bring in to do the sketch. Ah, uh, okay. So she is in the book. She is a historical figure. She does work with the team, but because of her training and the uh, and working with the Senora, she is able to sketch the portrait and then provide them with an accurate depiction of who they're looking for. Interesting. All right. So my memory um, failed me there. It happens. Um, I have another correction. I think I mentioned that Matt Lintz was back as Stevie. I was completely wrong. The They recast Stevie for this season. He just looks a lot like Matt Lintz from a distance, which is the only way they ever show Stevie mm. in this season. So I was wrong there, but... You know, it happens. It does. So. And it will. Yes. Um, That's all I from liked, the corrections department. Yeah. I liked um, Sarah kind of walking through the apartment and seeing Libby where she wasn't and kind of like gathering. She's kind of like the, uh, the what was the name of that show? Was it like the profiler or whatever? And like she kind of like, you know, get into, I can't even remember what the show is, but just like kind of showing her picking apart the details of the scene and like trying to figure out how things are reconstructing yes. kind of like the Hannibal thing that yep. you mentioned. Yeah. This is what we were talking about last time. Yeah. I, yeah. I loved it. I loved that sequence. I thought this mm -hmm. is exactly as I was watching it. I'm like, this is what Alex and I were talking about and they yep. committed to it more in this episode and it was really cool. Yeah. I want, I want more of that. It's so sweet. Absolutely. What I didn't yeah. like about the sequence were the cheesy, like flashes of inverted color Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of flashback content in this episode and the next. I was like, kind of thinking like, were, were they trying to to buy time? Because like, there's a lot of like content from the previous episodes. Instead of just like referencing it, they're just like straight up showing. I mean, like entire dialogue exchanges. And I was like, yeah. this is a little much. But yeah, even watching it week to week, or I should say, a week apart, I'm still like, okay, I remember this fine. And it's the like odds they, are good if you're binging it later, you definitely don't need to see it again. They're not quite uh, assuming we are as smart as we are in some cases, it almost seems like, right? Yeah, it's weird that they're willing to be like, ah, they'll get it with the microscope and the and that. But then they're <laughs> like, no, show them that Libby killed the matron <laughs> again. In yeah. case they forgot about the brutal murder. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I noticed that as well, particularly with something in episode six. But we'll get there when we get there. Um, I loved the. However, I think the sound design is awesome. The part where now, granted, this particular when I was watching this episode, I had headphones on. I was watching it on my phone. Uh, when they lift the matron's head, oh, the sound oh. was so insane and so gross. I actually was like. Ugh. It was it was horrifying. It, it was nuts. And I was like, geez. 
I, if if you're watching it on TV, I didn't know if it registered as well. Oh, it's well. I have I have a very nice sound system, <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> but it's it did sound insanely good, and I that was yeah, it was that was disgusting. disgusting and awesome. So props to them. Even as he was like reaching over to do it, I was I, I felt like his face was kind of like Sarah. Do you know what you're asking me to do here? Yeah, <laughs> and and it's oh. This season's yeah. been really grisly. Like mm-hmm. they they haven't they've done really well with just like amping up the grossness of it. Even just in the again the sound design is such a simple thing, but it's so effective. Yeah. Um. On the topic of the acetanilide, I feel like I'm kind of missing something that I don't know if I should know yet. So this might be hard for you to talk about, but like, I guess I had never put together that like the poison was coming from Libby, like uh, that it was moving through her and that's how the baby was getting it. I think that makes sense. But um, for some reason, I thought that she was poisoning the baby to uh, after being like fed up with it, like we see her get fed up with and things of that nature. So I don't and me like, I don't know if that's what she would do in the end or what. So I guess there's still like a something still hanging with like why did she try to save the nap baby? There, I'm glad you you brought that up because I had it in my notes, but I couldn't figure out how to how to bring it into the conversation. Uh, that's a super important detail, and okay. it was something that I thought the show was going to skirt, and I'm actually not positive they're going to explore it as much as they should because they do bring it up. And I, I agree. I think everybody's instinct to be like, "Oh, this baby was poisoned." You would, I think, ten out of ten people would assume that it was mixed in with formula. That somehow it was like an eyedropper. I, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody would immediately assume that the person who was nursing the baby would adjust the poison themselves to pass it through to the baby. Yeah, because in the they don't in the book they don't they don't discover that until later and. It's it's really important, and well, it's really interesting. It's fascinating. It's the kind of thing where, like, Chrysler even said, it's the kind of thing he'd be enthralled with, the kind of detail that he would think is particularly important and interesting. And they come to this realization in the show, and they're all kind of look at each other like, okay, got it. <laughs> and then they move on from it, and I'm like, well, that's a huge detail. And uh, it's the kind of thing that Laszlo would love to sink his teeth into, so I hope that that gets explored more i would have to imagine so so i guess at least for for our listeners understanding it is like acetanilide would have been taken as a painkiller and as a fever reducer back in back in like the 1800s um which i think they maybe touched on a little bit when they first figured out that that was what the poison was but um i think they're gonna have to talk about it because like i don't understand why charcoal was even in Libby's mouth when she had charcoal in her mouth yet. So I think, I don't think I'm necessarily, like, I I guess there's still some strings to pull and we're not supposed to know yet. But I'm curious if anybody else feels like they know what's going on or not. You can't really answer to me because you already know from the book probably, presumably, I assume. Yeah. So, so if anybody out there is listening and they haven't read the book and they've, they've connected the dots before me, I kind of want to know that you've connected the dots. I don't necessarily want to know what the dots are or what the connection is. 
If you do um, write in and you want to talk about that but don't want Alex to read it, you can mark that in the title of your email, or I'm sorry, the subject of your email, or just right at the top, and he'll forward it along or yep, or not, yep. or we'll save it for after the series is over or the season. Absolutely. All right, so good. I'm I'm glad I'm glad that I remember. Or join our that. Discord where we have an entire show spoilers and book spoilers section. Yes, yes, the book spoilers section is is rife with discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Being the only person on there who I think has read the book, it's, it's just, just an just echo Nick chamber to himself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, and insane that Libby would just leave the baby there. Like, even just the idea of, like, I'm going to leave a light on for you, baby, and then walking out of the door. Yeah, all the baby scenes make me profoundly sad. Yeah. Like, in a very deep... To the point now where I turn the volume down because the sound of the baby crying makes me, like, up, physically upset. Mm. You've been properly conditioned over the past year, It, so it is good. the perfect time, <laughs> yeah. Like, my baby doesn't really cry like that anymore. It's not that, like, infant cry, but it gives mm-hmm. me flashbacks and... Uh, but she never, I mean, that's like, again, the sound design, that is the saddest little baby cry. Mm -hmm. And it is Mm -hmm. just like, it's brutal. It just rips my heart out. Yeah. All right. Act two. As Sarah writes Libby hatched largely on the chalkboard, Laszlo theorizes that Libby may be starting to unravel. Libby sits in the park smoking a cigarette when a woman walks up in an attempt to comfort the baby screaming next to her. Libby's disengaged stare shoos the woman away, and Libby throws her head back, not attending to baby Anna. Colleen looks through a book of criminals and known associates to give the police a picture of Libby to go off of, and she recognizes a picture of Libby, but doesn't volunteer that it's her. Doyle notices, though, and takes it out for reference. Back at the chalkboard, Sarah theorizes that baby Anna may be overstaying her welcome after Laszlo mentions uh, when a mother loses a child, they're often frozen in time... uh, for the grieving mother. Marcus shows up to report that the police found Libby's picture as a known associate of the Hudson Dusters. Libby drinks more acetanilide and feeds a crying baby Anna while remarking, I won't forgive, forget you, little cat. Remember, I remember all of my babies, and we see pictures of at least four other babies. The next day, Libby sees her likeness on, at the, pap- on the paper as she approaches Sarah's detective agency. At the time, Sarah and John are at Cyrus's and ask him if he's ever seen Libby. Cyrus tells them that Libby is... Google. Gugu's girl. When they return to the agency, Sarah notices the lights were left on, her father's gun is gone, and the chalkboard has been erased, with eyes drawn all over it and the words stupid. How dare she deface the chalkboard? Right? Uh, we got a lot of chalkboard in these couple episodes here. True. So that was good. Um, when John was writing on it, I was like, what are you doing? Get away <laughs> from there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so... The this this scene here, I think, is what cemented the Libby performance for me. The scene of her in the park, just kind of smoking and just completely detached from reality. It seems like um, was was pretty incredible, and and I have to just note that because it was, I don't know, it just struck me as like such a the the way that she has changed over the few episodes that we've known her has been it's been a great breath and and like depth of of character over that amount of time so i'm i'm kind of it's it's been a treat to watch if disturbing in most places yeah i i agree 100 percent. i think the it's a bit of a deviation from the book because i i would only argue that she hasn't changed you're just seeing a different angle of her 
because Libby from the book is this extremely intelligent, wildly manipulative uh, woman who can immediately figure out how to prey on whomever she's targeting. And so in the scene where she's having lunch with Sarah and Mm -hmm. she's very kind of a little silly and almost a little like giggly and also kind of shy and like gets Sarah to open up. I think that perhaps for the purposes of the show, we, we are truly seeing an unraveling, but I think it's a little more that that's the front. That's the character. That's the part she was playing. We don't know what her, how she was acting around Gugu Google. Or the baby. Like, I guess we know a little bit about how she was acting around the baby, but we didn't get that full picture of of what she was like at the time. We were in the pocket of Sarah and the yes. other protagonists of the show. Right? And there's also, Libby also sort of feeds off of the thrill of the, the chase and the pursuit. Mm-hmm. So her handing over the file and aiding Sarah somewhat, I, I don't think was an act of, so much to try to throw them off of her scent, but even just her being like, I'm so smart and I'm so capable and so certain. Yeah. I'm going to actually actively help the investigation and it won't harm me. It's just the, an extreme act of hubris. Uh, and so I, you know, she's described in the book as being able to almost seem like she's flipping a switch in terms of her personality. You know, she's mm. supposed to be very smart but also very, it can be like charming and disarming, but also like very seductive. Like she, she seduces a lot of men to get what she needs and uh, also very cold and scary. There's a scene in the book with her where the senora sees her with Anna before she talks to Sarah. So this is very early in the book. And that's how she knows Anna's still alive and she's been abducted. And she says the look on the woman's face is essentially exactly what you're just this moment you're describing, where it's just this mm. insanely cold, detached, almost like the way Quint describes the eyes of a shark in Jaws, like this almost animalistic look in her eye. Yeah. So this th- this uh, particular angle of the character has been like just wonderfully captured. Yeah. In this Absolutely. performance. Um. So yeah. The. Kind of Laszlo saying that when a mother loses a child, the child's frozen in time for the grieving mother, that kind of thing. And Sarah realizing that the baby has overstayed its welcome. I guess, once again, this gets back to what we've already discussed and that's something that you can't necessarily reveal to me. But it seems as though there ends up being... Clearly there's a cycle here. We see portraits of four other dead babies, one of whom we knew about. Um, But there's like a cycle that's happening somehow the baby dies, but I don't really understand if Libby actively affects that death or not. And, um, but it almost feels like when she gets kind of sick of the baby, she's like, all right, this is, it's time, you know, I'm not going to forget you little cat, or I'll always remember you little cat, or I'm going to set up all my portrait stuff so I can get your picture and that, that kind of thing. So I don't, we don't have the full picture yet, it seems, but it's yeah, you're it's kind of dancing, jangling around in my brain. Yeah, apparently. You're, you're dancing around some some important and interesting stuff, but uh, yeah, we'll have to see what the next two episodes or episodes seven and eight reveal. Yes. 
the two-hour finale. Man, <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's so much that's left to happen, and there's just not enough time to do it. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Um, they're obviously cutting out. I mean, they're, at this point, they're cutting out a, at least a third of the book, if not 50% of it. Hmm. It's a huge book. I mean, that's the thing. It's massive. So you got to yeah. cut some stuff out. But they're, I mean, they're ripping out pages, chapters. Interesting. I get. I mean, I get it. It's just funny because the the, the alienist adapts pretty well, and they yeah. they at least stuck to the pretty core structure. They didn't leave any like huge characters or moments out. They didn't live up to the book in a lot of ways, but at least it was mostly there. But this, it's like man, they're just hacking away at it. Yeah, you you had you had texted me after you finished this episode that you were kind of almost curious about them leaving Libby open for a third season. Well, that's not what that, I said. That, okay. That's what you inferred we, out of what I said. But uh, once you said that, it made me start thinking further. I wasn't even thinking about that. But uh, now I am. Because there, it's <laughs> uh, basically what I, what I wanted to convey was that I feel like they're setting some stuff up for a third season. And I, it was stuff I did not expect. But hmm. that, that may no longer be the case. But we'll talk more about it, particularly in the next episode. Okay. Um, question about the book is, uh, in, in the book is Libby Google. Uh, sorry, I said this wrong. Is <laughs> Google Libby's boyfriend? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, Good. I think boyfriend is uh is a little <laughs> but yeah, but yes, they are they they is, are in a is, relationship of sorts. Okay. All right. That's good. Um. Yeah. I don't know the Libby Libby having invaded invaded the the agency. I thought was a, a very it was creepy. Uh, it was creepy. Yeah, I knew it was coming as soon as she's like, "Oh, they left the lights on." Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, yeah, but yeah, um, that's still unsettling to have the person in in the room with you there. Oh yeah. Anything else on Act Two? Nope. All right. Act three, John brings Sarah back to his house because she's not safe with Libby out there. Sarah thinks it's unnecessary, but she stays. John almost apologizes for his words in the last episode, but he needs more time to think on it. Laszlo is in his office at his institute looking at drawings of the, of the slain matron. When there is a knock at the door, he tries to dismiss it, but Polly comes in anyway to show him a new trick. Laszlo quickly dispenses with the trick and sees Polly off which appears to affect Polly. Laszlo calls up Karen Stratton for a drink to discuss uh, Libby's case. Karen is clearly intrigued, and Laszlo needs help understanding the mind of a woman. He calls Karen a colleague, and they drink to collaboration. Sarah at John. Sarah's at John's, but decides to leave to seek out Google. She's, uh, she goes to Cyrus first, who won't help her, but Joanna steps in and decides to track down Google. They find... Google. And Libby on the street <laughs> at the dog fights Google. pulls a sad Libby into the alley and she's concerned that baby Anna doesn't think of her as her mother. Google. Says not this again and sweetly uh, sweetly talks to Libby uh, in the order of I would kill for you in order to start breastfeeding on her as they begin having sex out in the street. Uh, I can't even tell you what you just said in that whole recap because I was trying so hard not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Well done. It doesn't help that I stumble over at every other word, but um, uh, John bringing Sarah back to his house. We'll get to that later. I th- or Sarah, 
yeah. yeah. We can we can get to that later in the episode. I, I do like the reference to his grandma. Yes. Mort's grandma yeah. is such a funny character in the book or in the alienist that it's it's nice to have that reference. <laughs> yeah. A little a little touchstone. Mm-hmm. Um Laszlo and Polly, like I immediately knew that that wasn't going to be good, you know? But it's just it, it but it, I I identified with that thing of like hey, the adult that you want the attention of can't give it to you right now cuz they're busy kind of thing. Um and so I just thought that was well done and sad. But don't know that there's a whole lot else to say about that. Nick, what are your feelings about Karen Stratton? Ooh. Uh, okay, so I'm 99% sure, 99.9, I'll even go out to say, that she is not in the book in any capacity. I believe she is a wholly original creation for the show. Uh, that said, I mean, there's always that tiny chance that I'm I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure based on the research that I did. Uh, I I think she's interesting. I like, I really like the, I'm, un, I'm, mm, I'm very, I'm doing a great job. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really like her as a foil for Laszlo. I don't want to reduce her to just being that because I think there's a lot more to her. Yeah. Uh, or there can be, whether the show chooses to, to make it so. But currently, I think she's really interesting for Laszlo because he doesn't really have that. There's not really a contemporary for him in the books. He's definitely kind of the always the smartest man in the room. And it can be sort of isolating. It can also make him a little boring because mm-hmm. you're like, okay, like I get it. But she, the way she challenges him and simultaneously reinforces some of his theories but also brings a new angle to it I think is really cool. I think it's very natural and it makes a lot of sense and it it's uh i i like her i mean i like her as like a clearly she's a potential like romantic interest but i like how they're treating each other as like a as colleagues so far there's clearly a spark there but they're he's trying to keep it professional and uh i don't know i i dig it i like her yeah, the, I mean, there's something about it for me that I think you kind of touched on in that I don't necessarily want... It's weird. I don't want her to exist as simply just like a foil for Laszlo, yes. but I also don't want her to be that much of a love interest, even. Yeah, really. I don't I don't want her to just be a plot device. Yeah. But I think she's, she, at least for a, a, a reader, she's really refreshing. Because it's something that I I don't know what to expect from her or what to uh, where where it's gonna go. I don't know. Well, and it, and it feels um, it feels warm and fuzzy that Laszlo would that she's there to open Laszlo's eyes to the idea that he has certain assumptions and biases as a man. Yes, I think that's I think that's nice, but it feels a little bit gimmicky almost um and me i don't know if that's just the way that their scenes are written or the fact that like they're always at that bar when they meet up or like what the what the deal is with that like it, it just it just feels like there's a little bit of um like glibness or something about their mm. relationship or their 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 how they relate to each other. I don't know. It's, I think it's interesting. I'll, I'll, we'll have to see where it goes by the end of the season, but it, yeah, she does feel a little too good to exist. 
Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, here's this woman who is as intelligent, as published, as respected as Laszlo. She's attractive. She's well-spoken. She carries herself well. There's, like, I, I have, like, my spider sense is kind of tingling with her because I'm like, this person has to be a plant or a mole. It's like they're setting her up to be, like, a Moriarty or something or, like that. Or, right? or, yeah, or even, like, an agent for Dr. Marco. And uh, she's in there to try to get his trust to only only to undermine him. Uh, so I'm suspicious, especially because it would be it would be fitting for Laszlo, who has suffered a tragedy and lost the love of his life, to find another potential companion, someone he really does care for and respect, which is the biggest thing. Because Laszlo, while he does have a respect for Sarah in the books and does respect her he's often quick to dismiss her because she's not because she's a woman. And I mean, like that's the way they, that's how they roll back then. Mm -hmm. But also because she doesn't have any of the training he does or the, or the background. And so for this woman to be his equal, essentially is really interesting. Uh, Daniel Brule's Laszlo has a little more, uh, I think a little more tact. He's a little more polite and he's, he is clearly taken aback by her, but he recovers well. I feel like Laszlo from the book would be a little, more rough around the edges. Uh, mm-hmm. Although Daniel Brule's Laszlo had the the line, all of his lines to Violet about like the shallows and all that was yeah. was very in keeping with the book, and and that's the kind of behavior he typically demonstrates. So it's cool to see him caught off guard and also quickly come around to being like, oh, so he he can have a respect for her that he simply can't have for anyone else because she's more educated and from his world. But yeah. I'm I'm wary of it because it feels like an easy way to write another devastating blow for Laszlo is to have this promise of maybe some uh, another shot at love and then to have it ripped away by somebody it'd be mm. it would be dark but I uh, yeah and this is this is pure theorizing because this is not from the book so I'm not I'm not spoiling anything interesting I like it though it's interesting it's it's yeah. keeping me it's keeping me on my toes every scene with her I lean forward and I'm like I'm into it well and they film it very differently right there's lots of these like interesting close-ups yeah. on like the gimlet or whatever that they're who whatever drink they're actually yeah. making there and it looks like uh is that how is that absinthe being poured over like sugar Maybe. or something I don't know you yeah you might be right I don't know I think it might be yeah but, I mean yeah. she's also very I figured out why? Because she's the woman who plays Irene Adler in Sherlock. Yeah. Yep. Who I was incredibly fascinated by when I when she showed up on Sherlock. I was like, who is this just entrancing person? So that's great casting too, because she's sort of hypnotic. I don't know. I can't put yeah. my finger on it, but it's awesome. Yeah. She's her even just the her eyes have like this very intense uh Honestly, she looks like what Libby Hatch looks like to me in my mind in the book. Interesting. Where she she walks into the room and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, like I can't get a read on this woman. That's yeah. and I'm not I'm not trying to to devalue. Uh, I forgot her name because I'm bad with Rosie that. McEwen. Yeah, Rosie McEwen's performance because she's awesome and she's <laughs> she doesn't look like what I pictured, but she's playing it the way I pictured. So yeah. not to detract from it at all, but that that woman, uh, Laura, I think her name's Laura Pulver. I was just looking at it on IMDb. Yep. Uh, Yep. Yeah, she looks more in line where she almost has that kind of predatory look uh, in her eye. So, yeah, it's cool stuff. I like it. I want to see more. Yeah. Um, Sarah trailing Libby and, and finding her with Gugu, I think. Um, 
there's more more to come on that i think later yeah there's not there much certainly to say is. right now yeah that's fair that's fair it, it's just a very um uh, once again another thing i didn't know that i'd see on cable tv yeah but you know true that that's fair um all right let's go on to act four sarah sends joanna off to call on john and laszlo as she continues to trail libby joanna scandalously interrupts john's dinner with hurst and violet at delmonico's to get him up to speed john heads off and later uh heads off and later that night hurst complains to burns about john and sarah howard burns suggests that he publish a publish a publish a piece on Sarah in the journal. Sarah enters the basement of the building she saw Libby head into, and John follows a few minutes behind. Laszlo gets held up outside by Fat Jack, but Marcus arrives to save him. As Sarah reaches the top floor, Libby gets the jump on her, but as she sets her gun down, she grabs Ash from a fireplace and blinds Libby to get the gun out of her hand. Libby pauses, but slams the door on Sarah, and Sarah fires her gun, seemingly injuring Libby as she flees. Sarah hears a baby crying and retrieves baby Anna from a nearby drawer. Laszlo congratulates Sarah on a tremendous achievement as they ride back to the Linares to deliver their baby back to its home. Sarah appears slightly relieved, but also distressed. Um, Joanna at Delmonico's, I thought, was a... Yep, that's the only note I have from that scene. Just the gasp from the crowd yeah. when she walks in. I was like, oh, this is revolting. Well, and even just the, like the 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 maitre d or the waiter or whoever walking with me like yeah. there's a person here for you and violet commenting on like there's a person here like it the entire thing just nauseating ugh. yeah but yeah that was that was pretty incredible um sarah in in kind of the the house or whatever that is the building like trying to figure out if libby's there or not mm-hmm. and and that kind of thing i thought once again a great display of the show setting up uh or uh making things very suspenseful and claustrophobic and definitely dark and scary so that was good yeah the cinematography continues to just excel Mm -hmm. the scene where laszlo and the coach is riding up to the house there's all these like street lamps on and this haze in the air i was just like shit man this looks incredible like Mm -hmm. it doesn't look like a back lot anywhere or a set it looks real like it looks like we're there it's phenomenal Um, Laszlo talking to Fat Jack about his nickname, I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. Laszlo, Laszlo saying, take your name, Fat, Fat Jack, an unlikely appellation based upon your physique. Prescribed names can be inspired by affection, but more often than not, it serves as a paradoxical intention. What might seem like a tribute is in fact a true reflection of one's disdain. Him just basically being like, your friends hate you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, I can, I can uh, pants you. Just by talking to you. Yeah, it was awesome. That was quite good. Um, I love Daniel Brula's Laszlo. He's so good. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I like him more and more and more as the show goes on. Even in season one, I was like, "Eh, we'll see. And like, I I did like him throughout season one, but man, I just, I love him in this season. He's so good. Yeah, he's doing very well. Um, But yeah, the confrontation between Libby and Sarah, I thought was was quite good. Mm -hmm. I liked how it was handled and her kind of, even though she got the jump on Sarah, Sarah still could outsmart her a little bit. Yep. Um, and that was that was good. And the baby coming home, yeah, was 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 pretty powerful. Just them embracing their child and and putting the baby in the in the bassinet and things like that. I thought was was quite uh, quite remarkable. It was. So. It was. It reminded me for some odd reason of the ending of Dunkirk. I don't know why, hmm. other than like just the 
the ride and the vehicle and something about the music. So the music in the show, I've never been particularly blown away by it that I can recall. It's all been very fine. It's all mm. been yeah. accurate, like serves, serves its purpose. But in this scene and the scene following, I thought whoever the composer is for this show, they, they took their job really seriously that day because the music reached a new height <laughs> that it hasn't yet in this, in the entire series. And I was really like to the point where I wanted to go back and watch it again, just for the, the marriage of the visuals and the and the score was so good that I was like, okay, we've we've done that thing that only movies can do now, and I was waiting for it, and it couldn't com- couldn't have arrived at a better time. I completely agree. Like uh, this, these two episodes, there were moments for the first time in the entire show where the score kind of jumped out at me, mm-hmm. and I was like, wow, this is really yeah, this is really sense. so. I'm glad I'm glad that you you also felt that. Um, I think that's why it reminds me of Dunkirk, because the score in Dunkirk is so tense the whole time. And it's amazing. I mean, don't get me wrong. Hans Zimmer always does amazing stuff. And it's it's really good. But there's something about the final sequence in that movie where, like, all of the tension that's been ratcheting up in you for the last, like, hour and 50 minutes or whatever is released. And in, it happened. The music is almost just like all the resolution of this music just like washes over you, and that's the yeah. way I felt in this scene too. You've been waiting for this moment to if is this baby going to be rescued and delivered back to her parents, and when it does, the music like reaches this swell, and it, it just it, it it lets the tension pour out of you. It's awesome. Like I loved it. Absolutely, completely agree. Any other thoughts on Act Four? No, let's get to Act Five. All right, Act Five. John and Sarah arrive back at his house in the morning. Sarah clearly still thinks she failed in letting Libby get away. John apologizes for the things that he said, and he just wanted to hurt Sarah. Like, she hurt him, and he's deeply sorry. Sarah says she knows this before he even said it. Um, And as John makes up a bed for Sarah, she approaches him, and they sleep together. I have in my notes here, John Moore butt counter plus one. (laughs) So do I. (laughs) (laughs) Not the exact phrasing, but uh, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) <laughs> we didn't get any james marsden butt in this season of west yeah world, yo, this is a west world fm joke that has now yes. jumped into another show uh <laughs> yeah you'll have to listen to and watch west world to understand this joke and it's worth it yes um yeah john and sarah sleeping together i don't know how much there is to say about it until we really get into the next episode right because you see a little bit more of the um the, moments the afterwards <laughs> Yeah, but I, I I thought it was interesting because the way the moment plays out, it almost kind of feels like Sarah's imagining it hmm. at first, but then it clearly happens as well. So I thought that was kind of interesting in the way that it was edited. Um, yes. But yeah, no, that's certainly... And I guess the thing... I guess here's here's my question to you. Do you feel like they adequately kind of built up to this moment? Does it feel... I do, yeah. All right. So, in, in the sense of these characters in the show, you feel you feel as though this is a deserved moment that they delivered upon. I think it's a really complicated moment that is mm. born out of a lot of different things, which we'll have to talk about right at the top of the next episode for it to yeah. really seem fitting. Uh, just to comment on the editing, to pull another movie into this, this reminded me a lot of the ending of Drive. If you remember it well, where mm. it's cross-cutting between a confrontation and the aftermath of that confrontation sort of so it's not the exact same but it's like 
you see the buildup to the confrontation between like Ryan Gosling and um, uh, Albert Brooks. You see mm-hmm. that confrontation happening and you see the aftermath all happening kind of at the same time. And the mu- the way the music works with it is very similar to this scene. Uh, it's awesome editing. I really, really liked this sequence too. And this is another one where the music really helped. It helped sell me on the idea of this happening, which goes yeah. to tell you how good it was. Because I, yeah. I, had this been edited not as well and not scored as well, it would have been much more quick to throw it away and just dismiss it as crap. Uh, but I think it really helped convey what was happening and why it was happening. So I actually really liked it. And it, it it's it was a good way to do like a love scene without making it graphic or too schmaltzy. Yeah. I, I thought it was it, really well done. <clears throat> it felt very it felt very tasteful. <laughs> it felt tender. Up like to it, and in, yes, yes. It felt absolutely. it felt like an act of like love, actual like like mm-hmm. loving feeling other than just like lust. Yeah. So it was uh yeah. it was great. I thought it was really well done. And I, I liked it. I like the idea that they didn't, um, it doesn't feel like Dakota Fanning was the one on display even necessarily. Like it's not, neither of them really were on display except for really that tasteful side ass of, (laughs) you know, what that made us say, um, it, yeah, it's, it's funny that John being the damsel in distress earlier in the episode it's 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 kind of like a fun it's it's a fun like yes. objectification yes, of yes, the man yes. in the story it's a it's an so. awesome role reversal that mm-hmm. continues into the next episode also uh yes. i can't wait to talk about that all right well i will sum it up here for this episode once again you can find more episodes of our podcast on the alienist.tv we're also on apple podcast stitcher radio and google play podcasts you can email us at feedback at the alienist.tv to tell us what you think of our podcast and share your thoughts on tnt's the alienist so we can read them on our show Dennis corrections observations anything regarding the alienist or our podcast Midwest Podcast Network has other shows about video games, horror movies, HBO's Westworld, and AMC's Preacher. Find more about these shows as well as how to support the network at MidwestPodcastNetwork.com. Our theme music is the song Division by Kevin MacLeod, and it is being used under an Attribution Creative Commons license. That's all for this episode of the Alienist Recap. We can't wait to see what next what the next episode of the Alienist brings, but until then, we'll see you at the chalkboard.